perhaps you've never really thought to ask yourself this question, but I'd like to ask you, how much do you really know about God's grace? Have you ever thought about that? What do I really know about God's grace? How well do I understand the magnitude and the depth of God's grace toward mankind? Do you realize that you are in a position to have a deeper and more comprehensive understanding of God's grace and of how it is extended to mankind, both past, present, and future, than anyone not in your circumstance? Now, I'm not saying that you individually necessarily do understand more about God's grace than others. But I am saying that you have the tools available to you to equip you with such understanding. How well you understand depends on how much you take advantage of the tools that God has given you that can help you to gain that understanding. Now, why would I say that you have the potential to understand more than anyone not in your circumstance. One important key is the fact that you are here keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and that you keep the festivals of God, presumably, all of the rest of the festivals as well. The festivals of God, when properly understood, reveal God's plan of salvation. And if you are being led by the Holy Spirit, which gives spiritual understanding, it is through the power of God's Spirit that we can develop and grow in spiritual understanding. And if you couple that with keeping the festivals which reveal the plan of salvation when properly kept and understood, then that gives you a potential for spiritual understanding which those who lack the Holy Spirit and who refuse to keep the festivals that God has commanded simply do not have. Now, as you know, most churches that, that call themselves Christian churches long ago rejected the Sabbath. They have rejected the Passover. They have rejected the other festivals that God commanded us to keep in favor of human tradition. And in their place, these churches have adopted doctrines, festivals, customs adopted from pagan religion and philosophy and replaced the festivals that God commanded to be kept with borrowed heathen customs. They've replaced the festivals that the New Testament church kept with customs that were unknown to the New Testament church, or at least that they certainly did not keep. And because such churches have rejected God's festivals, they actually have little understanding of God's plan of salvation. You ask the average church-going person about God's plan of salvation, and their answers will be, at best, vague and certainly incomplete. Now, many who claim to worship Jesus Christ, who claim to be Christian, 
may think that they understand God's grace very well. They often probably talk about grace. Perhaps even in their sermons, grace is mentioned a lot more often than it is in some of our sermons. But the truth is, most people have very little, uh, very limited, I should say, comprehension of God's grace, its extent, its magnitude. For example, the president of a leading fundamentalist association of several hundred denominations some years ago stated publicly in an interview with a news media outlet, this president of this fundamentalist organization stated that one of the core beliefs of this association is eternal life in heaven or hell. Eternal life in heaven or hell. Now, think about the implications of that statement. With a belief in the immortal soul, eternal life is not something we receive as a gift. It is something that we already have, even though Scripture tells us that eternal life is something that we must seek. But if you already have eternal life, it's not something you must seek. It's something you already have. The only question is, where will you spend eternity? In heaven or in hell? And the concept of hell is a place of unremitting torture. That's the accepted and traditional teaching of much of Christianity. Consider further the implications of such a doctrine. The scripture clearly teaches that salvation requires faith in Jesus Christ. But of all the tens of billions of people who have lived and died, how many of those people have actually had faith in Jesus Christ? In truth, it's only a relatively small number. And what that means, what that implies then, is that the vast majority of human beings, when they die, are destined for hell. And many of the stalwarts of the various Christian denominations plainly admit that most of humanity, people like Calvin and Luther and others, admit that most people are destined for hell. That only a very small slice of humanity will be saved when it's all said and done. Today, the majority of mankind is not Christian in even a nominal sense. Only about a third of the world's population in any, any sense is affiliated with or claimed to be Christian. That means about two-thirds, or perhaps more, are not Christian in any sense whatsoever. And so the vast bulk of humanity, those living today as well as those who have lived and died in the past, are by that criteria consigned to eternal torture in hell. That is the implication of the doctrines taught by traditional Christianity. Now, one might ask then, is that grace? Is that grace? Would a God of mercy and grace consign the vast bulk of humanity to eternal torture? Create beings and then consign them to eternal torture. Could that even be called a plan of salvation? Or might it be a better term, a plan of destruction? 
when I was in college in Oklahoma years ago, I had a good friend at that time who was an atheist, or at least he claimed to be an atheist. And I really don't doubt that he was in his own mind at that time. I've since, long since lost contact with him. I have no idea how his life turned out later on. But anyway, when I knew him, and I knew him for several years when I was college age and in my early to mid-20s, we had many long discussions about questions relating to God. He was an individual that, even though we had radically different beliefs in terms of religion, we did establish a friendship and we were able to sit and converse about such things. And on one occasion, my friend told me that he did not believe there is such a God as is implied in teachings consigning vast numbers of human beings to eternal torture and hell. It's portrayed in the teachings of traditional Christianity. He could not bring himself to believe in such a God. Fortunately, that is not the God portrayed in Scripture. And that is not what the true God is like at all, and the Scriptures do not actually teach what many believe the Scriptures teach about that subject. The true God is a gracious God. And the festivals commanded in God's word in a profound way reveal the depth and extent of God's grace. In today's sermon, I want to focus on how the Feast of Tabernacles especially pictures God's grace being poured out on mankind. Now we might ask the question, exactly what is grace? Grace is one of those religious-sounding words that people in certain circles tend to use a lot. But probably most people have a rather vague idea of what grace actually means. The most common Hebrew word for grace is Cain, which comes from a root word meaning to show favor. To show favor. The principal Greek word for grace used in the New Testament is charis, with essentially the same meaning, that is, to show favor. The Greek word charis is related to the verb charizomai, which means to give freely and also to forgive. So grace has to do with showing favor. It has to do with giving, and it has to do with forgiving. It has to do with giving or receiving blessings. When you give someone a blessing or give someone a gift, that is grace. If you forgive someone, that is grace. If you show favor to someone, that is grace. And one of the gifts that we are offered in God's word is the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. The gift of being saved from an eternal death, among many other gifts. In biblical terms, you might say that grace is God's love in action, with the caveat that sometimes God punishes in love, and that's not necessarily grace. If you're being punished, you may not see that necessarily as grace, although even when God punishes, he does it 
with a purpose and a reason which in the in the end is intended to extend to mercy but when you're talking about God giving blessings when you're talking about God showing favor when you're talking about the plan of salvation the true plan of salvation then you're talking about grace whether you use the word grace or not anytime you are discussing those subjects you're talking about grace because that's what grace is most people perhaps everyone who calls himself a Christian presumably knows that the Bible teaches that Christ died for their sins and God giving his only son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin was an act of profound grace so if I'm a Christian presumably I know that Christ died for my sins but if that's all I know about grace as great a gift as that is my understanding is limited because there's much more to learn about God's grace than the fact that Christ died to pay for our sins or my sins and as an individual or the sins of a select group a group of people that are let's say picked out or chosen to receive salvation as some believe that God before humans even existed that he picked out certain individuals to receive salvation and picked out the rest to be damned for eternity but the idea of grace goes far beyond the concept of God just picking out a select group of people to offer salvation to to the exclusion of others what about all the billions of people who've lived and died without knowing or believing that Christ died for their sins does grace have any meaning for them what about this world of pain of suffering of sickness of war of famine and disease of poverty of squalor of oppression and injustice of crime and violence of prejudice of fear and hatred does grace have any meaning for such a world where is grace for a world full of humanity bound in chains of darkness and evil well if you understand the meaning of God's festivals you understand the answers but if not you probably don't this feast is not just about us we're really small cogs in a huge machine so to speak if you want to look at it in those terms we're, we're a very tiny part of the picture us individually or even as a group here and as was mentioned the Feast of Tabernacles is not really mainly about us it's about the world it's about humanity and what is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles and the festivals leading up to it have to do with all of humanity and how God is dealing with humankind as a whole the prophetic scenario pictured by the fall holy days as you probably know begins with a world full of every plague and evil imaginable a world at the precipice of utter destruction as a result of mankind following his own ways instead of God's the nations of Israel will have been largely destroyed and the remnant of Israel those few left 
will be in a brutal captivity. It's a time of which Scripture says in Matthew 24 and verse 22, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now think about that. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh, no one would be left alive. And that is the scenario in which the fulfilling of the fall holy days will occur or begin to occur. And Jesus Christ will intervene, something that is pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, the intervention of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, pictures an intervention of Christ that will come just in time to save mankind from himself. And so Jesus Christ is going to return to put down his enemies and those who are about to destroy the earth. Following that, he is going to bring back the peoples of the physical nations of Israel to their own land. They are going to be rescued, delivered from captivity. And they will be restored to their own land in Palestine, the land that he gave to Israel when he delivered Israel out of Egypt. And he will comfort them. He will heal them physically and mentally and spiritually. He will teach them his laws. And having brought them to repentance, he will give them his Holy Spirit so that they can obey his laws. The spiritual blindness affected by the carnal mind under Satan's influence will be removed. God will put an end to oppression, to hunger, to crime, to war and disease. He will extend his blessings not just to the people of Israel, but also to the Gentiles, who will learn to fear and worship him in place of dumb idols. All the earth will rejoice and be glad as every blessing imaginable is poured out on mankind in abundance. God will teach mankind the way of his salvation, the way of joy and peace and happiness. God will remove every tear and every sorrow. Every human being who wants to will be received into the family of God. The Feast of Tabernacles is followed immediately by the last great day, which pictures a continuation of God's blessings being poured out on mankind. Now remember, when we're talking about God's blessings being poured out, we're talking about grace. The vast numbers of lost souls who lived and died not knowing God will be resurrected and taught God's way. And in the end, the indication of Scripture is that most human beings, not just a small sliver of humanity, but most human beings... The majority of human beings will have been received into the family of God. And God will dwell with the redeemed of mankind in joy and peace and happiness forever and ever. Now that is what real grace is all about. That is the true plan of salvation. And so I hope you can begin to see then how the festivals of God from beginning to end reveal 
various facets of God's grace and especially how the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day show God's grace being poured out in abundance on mankind. For the rest of this sermon, we're going to go through some scriptures that illustrate some of the things that we've been, that we've described here and show you that these things have been long prophesied and, and that they are, according to God's word, going to happen. Notice over in Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah 52 and verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good, uh, glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, this is a proclamation of the gospel. The word gospel, the Greek word that is translated into the English word gospel is euangelion, which means, literally, it means good news. Or, or a good message. You could call it good news or good message or the gospel. It all means the same thing. And notice that this message is a message of peace, that it is glad tidings of good things, that it is a message of salvation that it is a message about God reigning in Zion. Now, there's much more to it, actually, in addition, that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with this. But th this is, you might say, the essence of the message. It is about what is pictured by this feast, God's reign and all the blessings that will ensue as a consequence of God's reign. And this is what is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. It is, it is picturing the reign of God on earth, the reign of the God family on earth for a thousand years. In Isaiah 40 and verse 1, Isaiah 40 and verse 1, it says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Now, God's people are going to need comforting when Jesus Christ returns because, as, as I mentioned, and we're not going to read a lot of scriptures about Israel's captivity and the tribulation. We may cover some of that briefly, but, but what we're picturing now will be the time when that captivity is over with and the people have been released and they're being restored to the land and they're being comforted. And this will be one of the first orders of business when Jesus Christ returns after he destroys his enemies and deals with the renegades and these oppressors. He is going to said about comforting the people and restoring their health and giving them the, the sucker and the comfort that they will need to restore, be restored in every way imaginable. As it goes on to say it's here in verse 2, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Now, 
in prophecy, often Jerusalem, which was the capital of the unified kingdom at the time of David and Solomon, it, often Jerusalem is used to indicate not just the city of Jerusalem, but the entire people of Israel. And this, this applies to Jerusalem, but it also applies to, more broadly to Israel as well. But it says, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, God will have punished Israel for her sins, her idolatry and other sins. In verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, that is our mission now. We have the responsibility as God's church to prepare for Christ's coming, to proclaim God's message of salvation, to alert people to what is coming and to, in that way, help prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. Crooked places shall be made straight, and the, and the rough places smooth. Now, there are other scriptures that tell us that the topography of much of the globe will actually literally be changed at the time of Christ's intervention. There will be massive earthquakes. There will be literally mountains moved out of their places. And valleys will be lifted up. Mountains brought low. There will be a change in the topography of the earth itself. But this will also apply to nations and peoples. And nations that are riding high and riding roughshod over others will be brought low. And the nations who will at that time have been oppressed and taken into captivity and treated horribly, will be exalted. And it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the eternal is spoken. God's glory is going to be revealed, and human beings will see the glory of God. This is the promise of God's word. Now, notice here it says the crooked will be made straight. And how that will apply literally might be open to conjecture, but it certainly will apply to human conduct and behavior. The ways of mankind are going to be straightened out. They are going to be corrected. The behavior of mankind that will have led to the cataclysmic events preceding the coming of Christ will be corrected. In verse 9, verse 9, it says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
Now, there are several commentaries that would render these statements here. O you who bring good tidings to Zion, you that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, changing the wording somewhat from the way it's translated here in the New King James and some other translations. But it seems more likely that the implication of this verse is that from Zion, the mountain upon which God will establish his throne when he returns to the earth, and Jerusalem, the city where Jesus Christ will dwell, will, in a sense, proclaim to the cities of Judah. This, will, this is a prophecy for the time when Christ will have returned and restored Zion and restored Jerusalem. And they will proclaim to the cities of Judah, Behold your God because God will be dwelling there at Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And by extension, that same message will be proclaimed to all the peoples of Israel and to the world, to all nations eventually. We'll be talking more about that, at least I plan to talk more about that as the feast develops, but in verse 10 here it says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. So God is going to come with rewards, and the rewards are handed out will be commensurate with people's deeds as we're told elsewhere. And God's work will be before him. God is coming to do a work. And the scriptures give us a lot of details about the kind of work that God will be doing. Here in verse 11 it says, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm. Now, feeding his flock like a shepherd, that implies that God will provide for their needs. And that is one way in which grace will be extended to the flock of God. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So this illustrates the compassion with which God is going to deal with his people when he returns. Now, Jesus Christ is coming in judgment and he is going to severely rebuke mankind and yet at the same time after he has dealt with his enemies and put down mankind's rebellion he is going to deal mercifully and gently and patiently with those who are in need of being guided restored and taught which will be especially the people of Israel but all mankind will be included in that eventually. In Isaiah 51, Isaiah 51 and verse 3, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Again, we see this idea of comfort because nothing will be needed 
so much as comfort at that particular juncture in the history of Israel and God's people. He will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden. The garden of God where God had placed Adam and Eve and given them all the trees, everything that they needed for sustenance was there. There was no doubt a place of beauty and abundance. And this is how God is going to deal with the people of Israel. He is going to make even her wilderness like Eden. I don't know how much you might have studied the geography of Palestine, but in ancient times, parts of Palestine were extremely productive and fruitful in terms of agriculture. They were Much of Palestine was covered with forests, and, and there were other places that were covered with green pastures. And it, when, when God led the people of Israel into the land, he wasn't leading them into a desolate wilderness. He was taking them out of the wilderness and leading them into a land that is described in the Bible as a land flowing with milk and honey. Now later on, much of the land became much less productive due to primarily to the sins of Israel and the consequences of that. But as you go south from northern Palestine toward Jerusalem, the land, the, the, the climate changes and, and there is much less rain. And then when you get into the area south of Jerusalem, that even in ancient times was largely a more of a, a desert area. It was a land where they could, there was enough vegetation they could pasture cattle and sheep, but th there was not the the kind of uh, abundant rainfall there to make possible the kind of agriculture that was practiced in more the more nor northerly areas. So, in, in relative terms, it was more desolate as you got further south, and then eventually you got all the way into desert toward the extreme southern part of Palestine. What this is saying, though, is that even the wilderness areas then will become like Eden. They will be verdant places of abundant productivity in terms of agriculture. Her desert, as it says, like the garden of the Lord, Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. Now these things will be occurring as God pours out his blessings on the people of Israel. And this is God's grace being extended to his people. In verse 4 it says, Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. Now, many people chafe at the idea of law. Many false teachers have come along claiming that the law of God is a curse and that Jesus Christ came to get rid of the law of, of God. And as Christians, we don't need to keep any laws. We're free from law. But the truth is, God's law is a blessing. 
And, in fact, I gave a sermon on that very subject here some time back. God's law is one of the greatest blessings, actually, that he can give us. God's law itself is a manifestation of his grace. And he will be teaching the law and enforcing it and sending forth others to assist in teaching it and seeing that it is followed. And he will establish justice. Now, God is not going to be influenced by money, by people's money. He's not going to be influenced by corporations that have huge caches of dollar bills to give to politicians so that they can get the laws written in the way that will benefit them, perhaps to the detriment of others. He's not going to create situations where people are ground down and kept in poverty and ignorance. He's going to establish true justice, impartial justice. And his law is going to be a light for all the peoples, all the peoples peoples of Israel, the peoples of other nations as well. And it goes on to say, my righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. Notice that salvation is connected here with righteousness. And when Jesus Christ comes, he is coming in judgment, but he is also coming as a savior. Now, he, when he came the first time, he also came as a savior, but in a different role so to speak or in a different way he came to he came as a sacrifice to to give his life as a sacrifice to make salvation possible but when jesus christ returns he is coming literally to save the earth to save mankind from destruction and his salvation will be extended to the ends of the earth and he says my arms will judge the peoples the coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. People will learn to trust God. And his judgment is going to be extended to the far corners of the earth. And after a while, people will come to rely on that government for blessings. They will come to rely on God's judgment, on his guidance, because they will have begin to experience the blessings that result from being in harmony with God's will and his laws. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. When Jesus Christ returns, the scriptures tell us there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, the Bible uses that term several places, and it's actually used in connection with various events at different times. But what it indicates is that there will be such a fundamental transformation of things on the earth that it will be It'll be the same physical globe, but it will be so radically different from what we know 
and have experienced that it will be like living in a completely new environment. It will be a new environment. It'll be in a, in a, in a very real sense, a new earth and a new heavens. And the message here is that even though the earth itself vanishes or has changed radically, and people come and go, generations live and die, God's salvation is forever, and His righteousness will not be abolished. In other words, we can count on it. We can count on God fulfilling His promises, no matter what happens, no matter how many people live and die. God is going to fulfill his promises. And by the way, God's promises are not dependent on any human being living, us or anyone else. God's going to work it out of his plan, whether we're around or not. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. What God is telling us is that if we are committed to Him and His laws, if we're determined to obey Him, we do live in a world that will hate us for that. Especially the better, the more they get to know us and what we believe, we will be subjected to persecution eventually in one way or another, just as our spiritual forebears have been. Now, we don't know the extent that that might occur to us individually or in our lifetimes. Fortunately, we've been spared most of that so far. But the day will come when people will have to be willing to give up their lives if, in order to be faithful to the truth, literally give up their lives. And some now, you know, the even now... We live in a, a nation relatively free of persecution. Not totally free, but relatively free. But even now, Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the earth. And I'm talking about any kind of Christianity. And there are tens of thousands of people being killed, murdered, because they believe in Christ in some way or another because they profess the name of Jesus Christ, especially in some, in some Muslim areas where uh, Muslim radicals have taken over. But God tells us not to be afraid. For the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. It doesn't matter how many Christians are killed or how few remain. In the, in the final analysis, God, God's righteousness will endure and His salvation will prevail. His grace will be triumphant in the end. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake is in the ancient days and the generations of old. Now this is a poetic appeal to God, a prayer to God, if you will, for God to intervene. And goes on here in verse 
verse 9, to say, Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? This is a, Rahab here is an epithet for Egypt. And the serpent here is a term that is applied to Pharaoh and other scriptures. And the appeal here is for God to remember how he delivered Israel out of Egypt in ancient times and the need for his deliverance at a future time. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, meaning the Red Sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea like a road for the redeemed to, cr to cross over? This, is, this harkens back to the deliverance out of Egypt. Now, this deliverance was was a remarkable thing that occurred. It was a series of fantastic miracles that God used to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. Egypt was, at that time, probably the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, almost beyond doubt the most advanced civilization on earth. But it was an evil nation in God's sight, and it had enslaved his people, and God delivered them out of that most powerful of nations through a series of miracles. And just as those people were redeemed and brought into the land of promise, it goes on to say, so the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They will return out of their captivity and their slavery and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now this is God's grace being extended to these people who will have been suffering in this horrible captivity. And they will be delivered. Can you imagine the joy that will be experienced when these people see the prison doors opened and are led gently out of their, their places of imprisonment and captivity and slavery and given liberty and freedom and their physical needs are taken care of and their injuries are healed. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? Now, might be good to keep these scriptures in mind because the time may come when we will need this kind of encouragement ourselves individually. You and you who and you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Who who is it that made this earth? Who is it that created human beings and put them on this planet? That's our God. That's the God we serve. That's the God that we worship. And we must not forget who he is and his power. No matter how dark things may seem at any given moment. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor. When he has prepared to destroy and where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit. 
and that his bread should not fail. It's talking about the restoration of the people of Israel to a place of safety and healing and plenty. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Eternal of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. Yes, he's going to plant a new heaven, so to speak, and build a new earth. And say to Zion, you are my people. And they will have his words in their mouth. In fact, God is going to send some of them out to give the news to others. That God reigns in Zion. And that his blessings and his grace and his abundant favor is available to them as well. In Jeremiah 31 we read about a covenant that will be established with the people of Israel and Judah and will be extended to others as they become, you might say, in a sense, spiritual Israelites or Jews. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Well, let's go back to verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I may, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is going to get to the very root of evil and root it out because the root of evil is in our minds and in our hearts. That's where evil abides in this earth because we were created with a nature which is undisciplined and lawless. Paul wrote of it as the law of sin which dwells in our flesh. And with this nature we are drawn to sin like iron filings to a magnet. God created us that way for a reason. There is a solution to that problem of our nature. And the solution is right here. It is when we get in touch with our Creator. When He establishes with us this kind of relationship where He writes in our minds and hearts His law, our nature changes. The way we think changes. The way we behave changes the way we speak changes and God is going to have now that requires our cooperation we're made free moral agents we have to be willing to be led by God but the people the, the people who will have survived the tribulation are going to be ready to be led by God ready to be converted some of them will have already been converted in captivity. And God will establish his covenant with Israel in mass, so to speak. Satan will have been taken out of the way. He'll no longer be around to influence mankind and deceive and mislead the human family. 
God will put his laws. God, the new covenant does not do away with God's laws, as many have been led to believe. The new covenant is all about God's laws not being abolished, but being established more firmly and surely than ever. Because they will be written not on tablets of stone or on parchment alone, but they will be written in the hearts and minds of the people. They were not written in the hearts and minds of most of the carnal Israelites of old. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And those two things go hand in hand along with knowing God. When your sins are forgiven and you've entered into that relationship with God that is expressed through that covenant, you know God. You come to know God because God is dwelling in you through His Spirit. He is living in you. And you come to know the mind of God. And so it will be with the people of Israel at that time. And so... Humanity itself is going to undergo a fundamental change in how they think and how they behave. Over in Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, it says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see, see visions. God is going to pour out His Spirit eventually. Now, this isn't going to happen all at once. It's going to take time for this to be accomplished. But God's Spirit will be poured out eventually as His grace is extended to the far reaches of the earth. His Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. All nations will be taught who is the true God and what that God expects of them and requires of them. And they're going to learn to worship the true God, and throw away their idols and abandon their false beliefs. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17, Isaiah 65 verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now, we, as we mentioned earlier that this expression occurs various places. And what it means, it means that Everything is going to change for the better. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Soon the bad news of today's world will be forgotten because there will be a new heavens and a new earth and a new reality on the earth. Now I'm sure there will be some history taught. People will be reminded, for one thing, there will be the Bible to remind people of what happened prior to this age in which they will be living. And there will be lessons to be learned from that history, but, but it's not going to be something that is dwelt on in, in terms of people just being occupied with their minds being focused on the world that we live in. It'll be focused on their reality. 
which will be completely different from what we experience in today's world. In verse 18, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now notice again, God is going to be working and this will be a process that will take time, but the outcome is going to be gladness and rejoicing. Lives of happiness and fulfillment which we can scarcely imagine today in this world. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Now, if you take a look at humanity today, you might wonder how much joy God has looking at the humankind that he's created and what they're doing with his planet and their own lives for the most part. I seriously doubt that he's getting a lot of joy out of what human, the human family is doing now. But at that time, God himself will rejoice in Jerusalem and in the people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now, if you're at all aware of what's going on in the world today, you, you should be able to readily see the difference between that world and what we are experiencing. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. Now, one of the most difficult things for a parent to go through probably if not the most difficult experience in life is the death of a child. And if you have children and you've even had your children become seriously ill, you can probably identify with, with how difficult an experience that can be. But the fact is many infants have died in our world. I remember my wife and I visited a grave, an old, old graveyard up in northwest Missouri some years ago. I forget why we were there. We were looking for something, I believe, some relatives' graves or something. I'm not, I don't remember for sure exactly what we were doing there, but I think that that was the reason. But it just struck me this was a very old graveyard going back into the early 1800s, I believe, and it struck me how many graves of infants there were in that graveyard. Infant mortality, even today, is not as uncommon as one might imagine, but then it was something much more common. It wasn't unusual at all for infants to die shortly after birth, or children to die in infancy or at a very young age. For one thing, there, there were communicable diseases such as diphtheria and other diseases that killed a lot of children and other reasons that, that children died at a young age. But here's a world where it says no infants are going to die. Imagine how different that world will be nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. People will live to a very ripe old age, and you won't have people dying in their 40s and, 40 and 50s and probably even 60s. It says the child shall die 100 years old. Now, I'm not sure exactly what this means in 
exactly how it's going to be fulfilled, but it seems to indicate that someone who dies even 100 years old is not necessarily going to be considered ancient. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Now think about what this means. How long do trees live? Trees are said to be the oldest living things on the earth. Some trees are more than 5,000 years old, we're told. Now I can't, you know, I, I can't uh, necessarily verify that firsthand, but at least that's what I've read and heard that some people who study those things have said. And many trees live to be hundreds of years old. It's not unusual at all for trees to live for hundreds of years. And if this is to be taken literally, then this indicates that just as in the days before the flood, that people may be living for hundreds of years during the millennial period. And they will not be planting their crops to see raiders or foreign armies come and take them away from them or to see them devoured by insects. But it says, my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They're going to build and plant and then long enjoy the, the work that they put into building their little piece of paradise. And they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. You know, a lot of parents today, they bring forth children and then there's trouble. And they may try to rear their children with some sense of values or teach them right from wrong. Sometimes the children respond and sometimes they don't. Sometimes even despite the best efforts of parents, their children turn out to be drug addicts or criminals or, or have various other problems in their lives. Or they may get sick with some disease. They may die at an early age. They may be injured in a car wreck. I've known a number of people, even in the church, who've had children die from accidents, sometimes illnesses. But people won't have, have to live through those kinds of horrifying and excruciatingly painful experiences. They shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. They and their children will be blessed. Now that's grace. Remember that grace is blessing, being blessed, receiving blessings, giving blessings. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Human beings won't be fighting nature. They won't be fighting wild animals. Now, we, we may not appreciate what that means in our modern society where most of the wild animals have been killed off by our forebears, but this was uh, a major factor in the lives for people for most of 
the history of mankind. Even when I was growing up, there were bounties on wolves. And if you brought in a pair of wolves ears, I believe if I remember correctly, in Oklahoma, you'd get $20 from the government because wolves were a menace. They would eat people's livestock. Now, I don't know that they eat that many people, but they would at least eat their livestock. <laughs> and and uh, I think now they're trying to reintroduce wolves to where they were <laughs> exterminated. And lions. We, re we read in the Bible about lions even in Palestine, and, and actually there were many lions in Palestine in ancient times until they were finally killed. And th th those are beasts of prey that would prey on people's livestock as well as other beasts of prey. So what this is telling us is that human beings are not going to have to contend with wild animals eating their livestock and other problems of that nature. And I don't know, again, I don't know the details of exactly how this is going to be fulfilled. It's hard to imagine a lion being able to live on straw. But the, the bottom line is they will not be a problem. However that's going to work out, it's not going to be a problem for people. And I suppose you could even extend this to the beast-like nature of certain peoples and nations as well. That beast-like nature is going to be taken out of them. And it says, Dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So here is a list of fantastic blessings, blessings that that are in some ways mind-boggling that we can hardly imagine. And what this tells us are ways that God's grace is going to be poured out in abundance on mankind. A new heaven and a new earth, no infant deaths, no people dying in the prime of life, no children becoming rebels or their lives being lost to disease or accidents or illicit drugs, no fighting nature, no weather disasters coming in to destroy people's crops, no foreign armies coming in to pillage and steal and kill. All of those things will be things of the past. In Isaiah 59, in verse 21, it says, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit, which as it should be is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth. Now notice, God will put the, his words in their mouths. That means he's going to put them in their minds. And they will be living according to his word. And... His words are not going to depart from their mouths, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and ever and forevermore. What this means is you won't have one generation being succeeded by a generation of rebels, of people who do not appreciate the heritage that they've been handed, as we do in today's world especially in this country where, where we have a generation of people growing up who 
know little about their history. If you're not familiar with the kind of worldview that is, has been taught for some years in our many of our major institutions of higher learning, our colleges and universities, about this country and its history, you may be shocked to realize that vast numbers of people are being educated to believe that the United States itself is the, at the root of most of the evils in the world. And there's little appreciation for the blessings that we've been giving, given or and even less knowledge of why we were given them. Very few people realize that the only reason that we've been given these blessings in this age is because of Abraham, our forefather. Not everyone's forefather because not everyone is a descendant of Abraham in this country, but at least until recently, the majority were. We're, we're becoming fewer uh, in terms of the overall population as far as the percentage, but that's why we were given these blessings to begin with, not because of our righteousness, but because of Abraham's righteousness and the blessings that God promised would be given to his descendants. But we, as a people, are less and less appreciative of the uniqueness of our nation and the blessings that we've been given. And I think that tells us something about human nature. The, 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 the generation that succeeded the generation that went into the land of Israel, when Joshua brought the people into Israel, if you read the story in the, in the book of, of Joshua and Judges, the, the generation that followed that generation were of a completely different mindset. And they very quickly forgot who brought them into that land or why they were there. And they very quickly turned to, turned to, reverted to idolatry within one generation. And that's pretty much the history of Israel. If you look at Israel and Judah, there were periods when, for a brief period of time, the nation, especially Judah, would repent, at least to a degree, but that didn't last very long, usually. Often it didn't even last a generation, but rarely more than a generation. But here it says that, it says, My words will not depart from your mouth or the mouth of your descendants or the mouth of your descendants' descendants from this time and forevermore. These changes will be permanent, and they will last from generation to generation. In Isaiah 16, verse 18, Isaiah 16, verse 18, it says, Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. We're known as a violent society. We have murders occurring all across our land every day. And we have lived in a world of violence for 6,000 years where people have killed each other by the, by the hundreds, by the thousands, by the millions. 
World War II, it's believed that more than 60 million people died as a consequence of that war. People slaughtering each other by the millions. But here violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. Wasting could be translated devastation. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. This is a consequence of God's grace being poured out on mankind to deliver mankind from the problem of crime, the problem of warfare, or any kind of violence. In verse 21 it says, Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. See, God is going to work with humanity in a way that he has not worked with humanity in this age because he's turned the world over to Satan. That's what Adam and Eve wanted. That's what they chose. So God said, okay, you want Satan to be your ruler? Then he'll be your ruler. And I'll basically take a hands-off approach. Now, he has not been totally hands-off, but for the most part, God has left mankind to go his own way. And this world is not the work of God's hands. It's the world of the hands of man and Satan. But in that world, God is going to work with human beings in a different way. He's going to have a hands-on approach to dealing with mankind. And it says, all your people will be righteous. Imagine a world where everyone is righteous. Where no one steals, no one cheats on his mate, no one lies, no one covets his neighbor's possessions, no one worships idols, and so forth. That'll be the work of God's hands. And imagine the difference in that kind of a world as opposed to this. In Isaiah 2 and verse 1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many shall come and say, Come and let us go into the mountain, get to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So there will be no more war with all the evils that accompany that. I want to conclude with one final scripture over in Revelation chapter 21. Ultimately, the tabernacle of God, not just Jesus Christ himself, but God the Father as well, will be established with men. And 
in verse 3 of Revelation 21, it says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and, will, and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every, or There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. See, God hasn't just picked out a few people to save and then damn the rest to eternal torture in hell. God's offering salvation to anyone who is willing to accept it on his terms. It says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. All these wonderful promises God makes, including the promise of eternal life, he makes not out of constraint, but out of love. Because God is a God of compassion. He is a God of grace. And the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day teaches how that grace is going to be administered not just to a relative few of mankind, but to all of mankind.